have hardened Pharaoh's hearts, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am God. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let them, excuse me, we have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Fihiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them. And uh, let's just stop there. The story continues. They pass through the sea. The sea comes back on the Egyptians, and they are left to die. Amazing stuff. This is this crossing of the Red Sea, and we've been reading through the book of Exodus, and now we've come to probably the most famous passage within it. But I wonder if, like me, you've heard this, maybe possibly you've grown up in church and you've heard this in Sunday school, or actually you've seen it in a movie or a film. They actually one came out three years ago. Uh, it was with Christian Bale. I think it was called Exodus of Gods and Men. And someone texted me after the sermon this morning to say, did you know it's on tonight? So it's on film for tonight uh, if you wanted to watch it. But what happens is when we see stuff like that, actually it can become sort of removed. It can come like a fable or even a fairy tale. Has anyone seen The Prince of Egypt? Yeah? Oh, lots of nods. Um, my mum, that's my mom, one of my mum's favourite films. Um, she likes to put on the soundtrack while she cooks. Um, so, you know, and she loves to sing along, which just really embarrasses you as a teenager. She's giving it all the, deliver us! Okay, mum. Okay, yep. Anyway, what can happen with these stories, especially when they're famous tales from the Bible, is actually they get a bit removed from us. But what I want us to see tonight as we go through this passage is this actually tells us about our salvation. This shows us the way that God delivers and saves us. 
This isn't just some ancient fable. This speaks to us today. I want to uh, uh, locate us in this text. I want to show that this is part of our story, that we are, as Tom Wright says, an Exodus people. And one of the ways we see this, just as a, a brief overview, is um, this is referenced throughout Scripture. Alex Matia reckons there are um, two dozen other direct references to the Red Sea crossing. And then there are uh, innumerable allusions to it in the New Testament, some of which we'll actually unpack. So it's an amazing story, but it came home for me that this might actually be part of our story when I heard this quote. Again, Alex Matia. And he says that if you were to ask an Israelite who had just crossed through the Red Sea in this dramatic way, and you were to say to them, who are you? They would say this. I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Our mediator led us out. We crossed over, and now we're on our way to the promised land with his presence in our midst, for God will stay with us until we get home. And as I heard that, I began to hear, actually, that echoes with my own journey of being led out, of sheltering under the blood of the Lamb, of crossing over and headed, so, headed home with God. Can you hear echoes of that, possibly, for your own story? This, this passage today is a story of our own salvation. It actually teaches us three things. It teaches us what we are saved from. It teaches us how we get out. And it teaches us why we get out. And that's what we shall see tonight. So the first thing we learn, the first thing we read as we read our own story in this text is what Jesus saves us from. Let's jump back into it, reading from verse 5. So remember, we've been reading for the past few weeks that the people of God are in slavery, but we see it again here, verse 5. When the king, king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done? that we have let Israel go from serving us. Isn't that a nice way of putting it? From serving us. Some other translations will actually say, we have lost Israel's services, as if they're a sort of delivery company or external caterers. Whereas actually here, the Egyptians have lost their entire slave labor force. And now Pharaoh is determined to get them back or kill them. And now for us, this image of being in a foreign land, enslaved under the sentence of death, This is actually one of the ways that the New Testament describes our condition before we meet Jesus. Note it isn't the physical slavery of forced labor and imprisonment, but it's the spiritual slavery to sin, the things we do wrong that cut us off from God. Jesus spoke that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Paul will say in Romans 6.20, you were slaves to sin. And he says again in Romans 8, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption, adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. We could go on, but the picture of scripture as we see it is of separation from God. This is our natural state. In fact, we are spiritually dead in the things that we do that separate us from God. And this is actually like slavery because it's something we are born into that we cannot escape from ourselves. But the wonderful truth of God and his grace is that Jesus died to save us from this. Therefore, for all who believe in Jesus as Lord, they are led out. They are led out of slavery. We are released. As in the famous words of the hymn, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Come on. That's the gospel, and you'll have heard that before. But what I really think this passage shows us is that God's salvation actually leads us out of the layers of our imprisonment of our slavery. What do I mean by that? 
Jesus rescues us from the layers of our captivity. Well, let's see it in the example of the Israelites. Let's read again from verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die here in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And at this point we have to go, "Um, did you really say that? And we go to Exodus 4. It's not on your sheet, but this is what they say. And Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and told them everything the Lord had said and performed the signs before the people. And they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down in worship. So that is what has actually taken place. When they hear that the deliverance of the Lord is coming and they see his signs, they actually bow down in worship. They are full of faith and not fear. And yet in this moment, when they can see no way out, they are once again turned to fear. And it's actually like they want to return to their slavery because their perspective has changed. Their fear, fear replaces faith. And actually, this isn't the last time they'll do it. When they're in the desert again later, they'll say, "Um, in Egypt, we sat around with pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. And you have brought us into this desert to starve. Have you heard the phrase? It's a bit of a classic around this, that you can take the Israelites out of slavery, but you can't take slavery out of the Israelites. Maybe echoes of girls out of Essex and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I didn't say it in full. Don't worry. Here's the principle, though. They have been freed. Vicky's just despairing. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Okay. Okay. So, they have been freed, but they're living as if they were not. Do you see that? So they have been brought out. They are no longer slaves. And in this moment of fear, they want to go back to the way it was before. They have been freed, but they were living as if they were not. I wonder, do you hear your own experience in that? It's certainly mine. When you become a Christian, you receive the truth of the gospel. You believe in it by faith. And at that point, you are a new creation. You are given a new nature. You are given a new identity as a child of God. You have a new status. And objectively, you are free. You have received freedom. But isn't it so true that our subjective experience does not feel like freedom? In fact, some of you will come tonight going, yeah, I believe in God, but I do not feel like I'm in a place of freedom. And in fact, what we can actually do, even though we have been made free, even though we have been led out, is actually we can sometimes return to our ways. This happens in a number of ways. Um, First of all, most really obviously, even though we have been forgiven our sin, the things we do wrong, actually, we keep doing them. And when we do this, I think we actually lose the perspective that we have been made righteous. When we are forgiven by God, we are actually then seen in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which means we are perfectly holy, remarkable. But what we can feel like is we're separated from God again, and we don't have his approval. And it's worth saying here that actually Christian maturity is generally not just growing to be a better and better person. Actually, it's growing in your understanding of your need for God and the way that he has made a way of provision for you in Jesus Christ. Because salvation, as we see from the picture of Scripture, is this one-time, objective, freeing moment, but actually it continues on in our lives. There's three words around this. uh, Justification, sanctification, and glorification, if you want the theological terms. So we understand that we have been saved 
from the punishment of sin. But we, I need to understand that we go on being saved from the power of sin in our lives. That is called sanctification. That is God's process of making us more like Jesus. But actually, one day, we will be saved even from the presence of sin, which is called glorification. But do you see that that is an ongoing process? It's like there are layers to what the Lord draws us out of. Because we have been made objectively free, and yet we live as if we were not. So that's one way. Here's another way I see us returning. That once, what once motivated and moved us, no longer does. This was illustrated to me in quite a funny way when I was at a worship conference recently, all about worship. And the guy got to speak up. He's called Pete Gregg, and he's a bit of a minor Christian celebrity at this point. And he was speaking all about worship. And he began this worship conference by saying that worship was really boring sometimes. And everyone sort of smiled and let out a sigh of relief and said, yes, it can be. And then his point was around, actually, we can't let ourselves become, get into routines and we can't let ourselves be hardened. But I wonder if that chimes in with your own experience where actually you're singing songs or you're praying prayers or you're reading scripture that actually once so moved you and has shaped you. And then actually, as either you're in that experience again, you're going, this just isn't stirring me in any way. The liberating truth that once um, so inspired us that we have been set free no longer moves our hearts. So that's another way, but... Another one I think that we really see in the Israelites, this way of returning to slavery, as it were, is that we actually return to fear. We actually return to lives of fear. Uh, firstly, possibly of God, of his punishment, of his wrath somehow, of his, that we've sort of got on his bad side. But then also, significantly, for me anyways, it's like a fear of man. When we become a Christian, we, as I say, we're given a new identity. We have the full approval of our Heavenly Father. I can say to you confidently today that however I do in this sermon, my Heavenly Father loves me. And you can say the same thing about whatever you do this week in your job. You work from a place of the approval of the Father. You don't have to try and earn his approval because you are loved perfectly in Jesus Christ. And yet, we so are worried about what people think, especially related to our faith. What if people find out that I'm a Christian? Goodness me. And then what if they find out that I'm you know, not just a sort of nominal Christian, but I actually believe it? And then, goodness me, what happens if they find out that I want them to believe it as well? We have the approval of our Heavenly Father. We've been given His identity as sons and daughters, and yet actually we live in the fear of what other people think. And in this way, we can sometimes return to that slavery. Why does this happen? Why does this happen to us? Well, like the Israelites in this moment, we actually can lose sight of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. As the Israelites have come to the sea, so they've been traveling through the desert, they've come through the wilderness, and now they're at a place where on one side is the sea, impassable. On one side are the mountains, impassable. On the other side, the Egyptian army. It would seem to them as if there is nowhere to go. And yet paradoxically, amazingly, in this moment of being hemmed in, as it will say in verse 3, they are free because they are with the Lord. And to give us a picture of this, I want to quote Douglas Adams. He's one of my favorite authors. Um, he's not a Christian author. He wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And then in one of his later books, uh, he's describing this moment where his, uh, one of his characters falls in love. And this is the moment, sort of amazing, revelatory moment for this character. And this is what he describes it being like, falling in love. But he says it's like this. He felt all of a sudden like a cramped and zoo-born animal who awakes one morning to find the door to his cage hanging quietly open and the savannah stretching grey and pink to the distant rising sun while all around new sounds are waking. 
That's actually an image of salvation, of a zoo-born animal, like someone born into slavery, waking to find freedom and the invitation to a spacious place. But what we do, I think, and what I see in the Israelites, and why I say that Jesus leads us out of the layers of our captivity is because in Christ, it's as if the door to all that enslaved us has been flung open. And so now we are free to go. And yet when we lose sight of what God does for us in Jesus Christ, it's as if we go back in the cage. And actually we begin to see life through the bars. We begin to see life through the things that hold us. And therefore our subjective sense of God's salvation has layers because what we need to be doing is keep being awakened to the truth that God has died for us. Have the eyes of faith to see that God has freed us. And now whatever our circumstances look like, we are free. Even when we are surrounded, we are free. The salvation of God is ongoing in our lives. But we don't just see what we get out of, actually. We see how we get out. And um, we have to say at this point, we're not led out of these layers, as I talk about, which you might be able to identify with. We're not led out of that by becoming a better and better person. Because the salvation of God is by grace. And that is shown for us in our passage. Jesus saves us by grace alone. And God saves the Israelites here by grace. Let's read verse 13 together, shall we? Here Moses replies to the fearful, complaining Israelites. And he says this. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This is how we get out of captivity. This is how we are led out. God fights for us and we stand in the stillness of faith. When Moses says the Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still, he sounds a lot like Paul who writes in Romans 5 that to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. We receive a complete deliverance because God fights for us. And we get out by grace because of what God has done. And this grace becomes operative on our life when we put our faith in him. Faith which is saying, Jesus, I believe you said you were who you said you were. You did those things and you died for me. And in this moment we receive the grace. I heard this excellent understanding of what grace is from Josh, our youth pastor, this past week. Where if you understand grace, it'd be good to understand it in relation to mercy and justice. What's justice? Justice is bringing people giving to people what they deserve. So actually the consequences for the bad things they've done, that's what they get. They get justice. Mercy is releasing people from the consequences of what they've done. But grace is giving people what they don't deserve despite what they've done. And that's what we get in Jesus Christ. That's how we are let out of captivity. Our faith means that we receive the life that we didn't deserve actually. That's the principle. But actually, this story shows us how it operates. Because as the Israelites stood on one side of the sea, they're under the sentence of death. As the Egyptians are coming to get them. But they cross over. God fights for them. He parts the waters. He vanquishes the army. And then they step in this moment from death to life. And it's the same for us. To be a Christian is to have crossed over. It is to have gone from death to life. Jesus says this in John chapter 5. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, 
but has crossed over from death to life. Can I just point out for us, by the way, that this image of crossing over, for us in our story, is symbolized in baptism. Because we, just like the Israelites, go down into the waters and come up again. Now, note that we're not saved by baptism. We're actually saved by faith. But actually, baptism is part of our journey from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom. And it's something that Jesus actually commanded us to do. So can I encourage you tonight? Maybe you say you're a Christian. Have you been baptized yet? Have you taken that step on your journey of faith, crossing from darkness to light? An outward sign of his grace. And this is important for us because if someone to ask, were to ask you today, are you a Christian? What would you say? What would you say to that? There was a preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he, he was a pastor of people and he used to ask this question as he got to know them. Simple, are you a Christian? But he said that he could tell a lot from their response. Because if they gave him that very British response, which is, I'm trying, actually he would understand a lot about them. Are you a Christian? Well, I'm trying. You know, it's a very modest thing to say. But he would say that if someone would say that, actually it shows that they haven't understood what it is to be a Christian. Are you a Christian is actually a yes or no answer. Because to become a Christian is to have crossed over, as the Israelites do, from death to life. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From being an orphan to being a child of God. From being by nature an object of wrath, but now having been justified. It's a change of status. And this happens by grace. By grace that we don't deserve. Not something we earn. And the thing is, we need God's grace today just as much as we do when we are first saved. We still need to hear that call from God to be still, to be silent, to let God fight for us. We've heard, we hear that in that famous phrase, be still and know that I am God. We need to hear that truth when we become a Christian and then we need to hear it as we go on, as we proceed. But I don't know about you, I find being silent and still and letting God work pretty hard. I like to organize things in my life. I like to make sure that things happen in my life, and I like to make sure that things don't happen in my life. Just to give you an example, at the moment, I, as I, I keep saying in these sermons, but it's just where I'm at, I'm an ordinand, which is part of the Church of England's, one of their made-up words, just means someone who is training to be a vicar. <laughs> and I'll next be a curate, which is another made-up word, about having the cure of souls. Anyway, basically, I'm going from one job, and I'll go to another job. And that's in about a year and a half time. So at this point, what do I do Do I trust the Lord who has so far led me in unimaginable ways through my life, who has my best interests at heart, who actually knows far more about the situation than I will ever do, or do I actually trust myself and trust my little networking skills and trust who I know and trust what I can do and trust what I can get for myself? You know, do I try in my own strength to sort about a place for me to go? Because it strikes me that if it's by grace that I have been saved, if it's by grace that I've crossed over, then it is by grace that I must continue, even in the decisions about my life. Because we might say, yes, yes, well, planning for your future, that's just wise. And planning for your future, well, that's actually using the brain that God gave you. Um, Because we can apply this to all sorts of things. You can apply this in your own life. How do you deal with your money? How do you seek out the right job? How do you work with your family? Relationships. And we say, you know, what can we do? But the question then becomes, what happens when we can't do anything about our situation? What do we do when crisis hits? What do we do when we have no other option but God? 
Because if we become totally self-reliant and we go back to the slavery that we've been free from, just as the Israelites do, then we actually no longer live under the grace that bought our freedom in the first place. Because actually, isn't it true that it's actually in the times of real need that we finally turn to God and we finally say to him, I need you. Isn't it finally when things are all taken away that there's finally a chance for you to say, okay, Lord, I need you now. But it isn't true that we just need God in the hardest moments. We always need God. There is no point where we don't need God. As I say, we've crossed over by grace and we continue by grace. Not by anything we do. Not by our own worth or merit. We just, otherwise, we go back to trying to have like a works righteousness, trying to justify ourselves, trying to make ourselves right. And you know, actually, this is the way that God is glorified in our lives when we fully rely on him. Verse 18 uh, we can read it, because God actually gets the glory. You can read with me, let's see if I can find the sheet. Verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his horsemen, his chariots and his horsemen. Isn't that amazing, that God is actually glorified in the enemies of the people who are against him? God is glorified when his grace is magnified in us. When God's grace abounds to us, his glory actually is made known. If you want to be someone who glorifies God, learn to obey him, learn to depend on him, learn to give him everything, not just with the very hardest moments, but with every moment and every day of your life. In this way, God is glorified through us because we learn to live by the grace that once first saved us and we continue in it. But remember, it's not something you have to try and earn again. His grace abounds to us because we have been given something that we didn't deserve because of the righteousness of Jesus. And our passage shows us what we get out of. We get out of slavery. We get out of imprisonment. But actually we see that imprisonment has layers. We see that we cross over to be a Christian is to have crossed over from death to life. But this passage actually also shows us how we get out. And it's because we have a mediator. Why do we receive grace? Well, the Israelites had Moses. Which is significant because, of course, the Israelites are no better morally. They're no better than the Egyptians. And yet the Israelites are the one who triumph. But they have a mediator. They had Moses. Amazingly, Moses is so identified with God. He's so identified him that God's power works through him. So that when Moses stretches out his hands, the sea is parted. But then Moses is actually also so identified with the people. That when the people sin, when they moan and whinge, God actually rebukes Moses. I wonder if you noticed that. In verse 15, where the people have been saying, um, you know, it'd be better to go back to Egypt than to die here. And then Moses corrects them and says, oh, stand still and watch the salvation of the Lord. You know, he gives the right answer. And then actually, God rebukes him. He says, why are you crying out to me? Moses was so identified with God, but also he was so identified with the people. And he stood in the gap between the two that the Lord might work his salvation. But guess what? I know a better mediator. Jesus Christ, who is our true and better Moses. Because we don't have in Jesus Christ merely a mediator who is fully God. Excuse me. We don't have a mediator who is fully man and close to God. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And he stood between us and the Lord. He, took, he actually stood in our place that the Lord might work his salvation. 
And this is really important because you could say to what I have said tonight, as I've said that salvation comes through faith alone, actually it's the free gift of God, the grace of God. You can say, yes, it's the grace of God, but you've got to have faith, haven't you? You've got to believe with all your heart. Well, our passage has an answer for that as well. Verse 21, the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now, the Israelites all cross over but it doesn't mean they cross over with the same disposition. Some, as they walked through the wall of water, going, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. Lord, Lord, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. And some are walking through going, this is amazing. Look at it, this is amazing. God's fighting for us. Look at this. Eat your heart out, Egyptians. Sucks to be you, you know, that sort of thing. And then the others are going, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And yet they all cross over. They all cross over from death to life. They have different qualities of faith. Actually, in Hebrews, it says they cross over by faith. And yet their faith was different. Why is that? It's because we are not saved by the quality of our faith, but we are saved by the object of our faith. We are not saved by how much we can muster up before God, but we are saved by the perfect one who has bought us and redeemed us for a price. We do not, and we actually have a mediator who didn't just stretch out his arms over a sea to split it, but he stretched his arms out on a cross that he might make a way for us through all that separated us from God. We learn from this that we get out of slavery, we get out of being enslaved. We learn that actually God does that through the layers of slavery in our lives. We see that actually we cross over, but we see that this is all because we have one who stood in our place. We have Jesus Christ. We have one who has made a way for us as he opened his arms, who lived a perfect life, who died, who rose again, and now reigns victoriously. So today, if you feel like God is far off, if you feel like today you've come with just a little bit of faith, remember that Jesus is greater and Jesus is the one that we are trusting in. Today, maybe for the first time, put your trust in the goodness of God and not your own goodness. Trust that you can just say to him, with what little you have, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You can pray that prayer. You can put your little in God and trust him. Or actually, maybe you're actually on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you need to return and surrender your sense of self-reliance and say to God, Lord, I am tired of trying to do it in my own strength. I give my life to you again. I couldn't save myself to begin with and I cannot save myself now. You are the only one on which my life is built. Jesus is our saviour. And today, know that whatever you are facing, whatever you are going through, in the highs and lows, in the good and bad, that it is God who fights for us. And as we sang earlier, all those against him will fall, for our God is greater. He can do all things, and therefore in him we are more than conquerors. We can do all things, for Jesus is stronger.